Good morning. This is Brad Lacey, pastor of First Baptist Church at Conshohocken, president of the Philadelphia Bible Society, and for this hour, host of The Great Message on Talk Radio 1210, WPHT. My guest is a very engaging lady. She was of consummate help to me during my recovery process as a, a, a cardiac patient late last year. I underwent what was intended to be a quadruple bypass. It proved to be a triple bypass given the complications to the surgery. But Christine Kindler is a woman of deep faith, engaging conversation, and my goodness, she does some wonderful things in the world of medicine. But before Christine and I share, I begin the homily with Proverbs chapter 10. The 11th verse, we have shared from this foundational verse over the past couple of weeks, the mouth of a righteous man is a well of life. I reiterate, the mouth of a righteous man is a well of life. And as I explored the book of Proverbs, and it is a rather massive collection of spiritual maxims, many of which are not germane exclusively to biblical teaching, but the Word of God encompasses truth wherever it is to be found. And so there is truth on the one hand, on the level of God's common grace, that is grace that is common to all, and therefore truth that is universally valid and recognized. On the other, uh, there is what we call saving grace, grace that is exclusive to those who are on the receiving end of the gift of salvation, courtesy of Jesus Christ. And within that vein, there is truth that is, by its nature, revelatory uh, and is, can be received only by those who know Christ. Now, it is truth that we want everyone to know. We're not looking to be or intending to be discriminatory, but by its very nature, it is truth that is only to be recognized by followers of Christ. And therefore, here in Proverbs 10, 11, the mouth of a righteous man is a well of life. It is a dictum that should be received by all, although I very much fear that in today's day and age of uh, uh, spiritual jaundice and societal debauchery, that the term righteous uh, or righteousness is going to be stumbled over. That is my fear. But drawing upon the book of Proverbs, I'd like to give it some substantiation. So if the mouth of a righteous man is a well of life, we read, for instance, in Proverbs chapter 12, the 25th verse, that a good word makes the heart glad. A good word makes the heart glad. This speaks to spiritual encouragement, and I did address this last week in my homily. I'd like to expand upon the litany, but by way of reiterating the first four. We read, please, in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 17, we understand that the uh, a righteous man is one who is faithful. And we know from 
Proverbs chapter 14, verse 5, a faithful witness will not lie. So when we speak now of spiritual health, if the mouth of a righteous man is a well of life, that righteous man is spiritually healthy, and his healthiness will, will overflow into the lives of others. On the one hand, he will be a man or a woman, for that matter, who will engage in spiritual encouragement, and we all need to be encouraged. I know that I do, but also uh, relating to spiritual health, he or she will be a faithful uh, individual. He or she will be trustworthy. You will be able to place your trust in a man or a woman who speaks a well of life by virtue of the fact that he or she is grounded in the righteousness of God. There is no room for faithlessness. There is no room for fly-by-night Christianity. We are called by God to be faithful, and we are called by God to be trustworthy. And those all around us will experience the salutary effects of the quality and caliber of our lives. You know, Jesus did pose the query, when the Son of Man uh, returns to earth, will he find faith on earth? Well, he will as he comes across or as he encounters faithful people. And the Word of God does tell us that God himself is the preeminent example of faithfulness. The Word says that though you and I be faithless, God himself will always, always be faithfully disposed towards us. And this is so significant a dictum or a proposition, so a profound a reality. We now live in a world in which a man's word is no longer of much value. It is not prized or esteemed as it once was. Men and women, and even now children, living for themselves at the expense of those around them. It's very, very frightening, if you ask me my honest opinion. Uh, there are no staples, no pillars, if the, and if they do continue to exist, they exist on very weakened ground. But one righteous man can make a difference. Did not Abraham, in his, if you will, confrontation with the Almighty, God was planning to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham said, Lord, if there are 50 righteous people, will you not spare the city? God said that he would. And by the time Abraham and God were done, Lord, if there are only 10 righteous people left, will you not spare the city? And God said that he would. We know that for Christ to experience fellowship, he says, I only require two or three, and there am I in their midst. And I can tell you that one righteous man, one righteous woman can make a difference. So we're speaking, please, of the need for and the source of provision of spiritual health. In Proverbs chapter 14, the third verse, the lips of the wise shall preserve them. A spiritually healthy man or woman is a kind of spiritual preservative. In the old days, salt was a preservative to meat. 
We understand, please, that from the lips of Christ, that you and I who follow him, we are the salt of the earth, but Christ adds the qualifier. If the salt has lost its saltiness, what good is it but to be trampled upon and, and stepped over by men? The church of Jesus Christ is to be pristine and pure and, and strong in its righteousness. That is the righteousness of Christ. From Proverbs 14, verse 25, a true witness delivers souls. We become agents of spiritual deliverance, and I believe we are now living in that day and age in which, as from the little book of Jude at the back of the New Testament, we may need to be literally snatching people out of the fire. I pray that this broadcast may very well be applied to such an end, that some of you are being snatched from the fire before it's too late. The fires, that is, of judgment. But in Proverbs 15, 2, the tongue of the wise uses knowledge aright. And here we can speak of spiritual practicality. The righteous man is, or the righteous woman, uh, they are not uh, individuals who are so heavenly minded that they're, they're of no earthly value. Many of us have known individuals just like that, so heavenly minded that of no earthly value, not true of the godly or of the righteous man or woman. Great practicality. The gospel is to be lived and not simply to be contemplated or talked about. From Proverbs 15, 4, we read that a wholesome tongue is a tree of life. Wholesomeness speaks to purity, but it also speaks to clarity. We bring a spiritual purity and a spiritual clarity to the table. There is no room for confusion. The devil, the Bible says, is the author of confusion, but our God is a God of order, okay? And we are called to bring clarity, not confusion, to the table. And there is so much confusion being cast all around, especially now in the field of sexuality. God have mercy on this planet and this forthcoming, up-and-coming generation. From Proverbs 15, verse 7, the lips of the wise disperse knowledge. We are a people of spiritual enlargement. We want the borders of the kingdom of God to expand. And from Proverbs 16, verse 26, the words of the pure are pleasant words. They are words that refresh and I pray that what I offer via this broadcast brings to you via the airwaves a, a, a source of spiritual refreshment. The author uh, in the book of Acts, the great prayer is issued by Peter that there would be winds of refreshment coming by way of the Holy Spirit because of the proclamation and expanse of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May you be refreshed via this broadcast today. God bless you. Brad Lacey with the great message. We return in a moment. Brad Lacey returning with the great message on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. It is my great pleasure, a kind of joy, to introduce to you my guest for the remainder of the hour. Her name is Christine Kindler.
She has been of great value to me. She is a PA. It's an entirely new class uh, within the medical profession or of more recent vintage. She's a wonderful physician's assistant. She was of consummate value to me as I was undergoing my recovery from a quadruple bypass of recent vintage. Uh, Christine is a marvelous uh, Christian lady. She's a very engaging woman, and she has something to say. Christine, welcome <laughs> to the broadcast. <laughs> I hope I live up to your expectation. Thank you for the introduction. Well, you're going to have to now, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no problem. Not, not at all. Not at not all. At all. Cri- Christine, it's, a, it's such a pleasure. You received me, I think, three times, perhaps once pr- prior to surgery, mm-hmm. twice on the other end of surgery. Uh, you're both very personable on the one, very thorough on the other. And so I always felt that I was in consummate medical hands. But what struck me most about you, uh, look, I don't mean this to sound cheesy or chintzy. You can find quality medical care any number of places. But to have that lovely collaboration within yourself of quality medical care and the one, with just being a, a high caliber person, and by high, high caliber, I'm speaking of your capacity to relate to your patients, and you set them at ease. We feel very much at home with you. That's, that's an extraordinary uh, area of giftedness. Not everyone within the current profession has that. Mm. Tell me about yourself, how you fell into medicine, how you fell into faith, if you did indeed fall into, perhaps you were raised up. Tell us something of how you came to be who you are. So that's sort of a loaded question. And again, thank you. Um, I've been very blessed to be a, a PA and living in the greater Philadelphia area for over 30 years. I came to Philadelphia in 1987 from my hometown. Uh, born Which in, is where? Born and raised in Northeast Pennsylvania, in, initially in Wilkes-Barre, and then my family moved out to the rural area after the flood of 1972. Um, yeah, and this is always a sticky question. We might as well just di- dive right into it. Um, I get a little nervous when people always ask me, when did you fall into faith? And I'm, I'm glad you didn't phrase it in, in terms of a lot of the um, common phrase that we use, you know, wh- you know, when did you find out you were saved? And um, and not that that's not important. Um, I've always had a hard time answering that because I've always felt, I guess, as long as I've had conscious memory, um, that I've always had a, a relationship with our Lord and I'm blessed to have that security my whole life. Um, I think a lot of that came from being very close to my grandparents on my mother's side, particularly I mean both sides, but particularly my mother's side, my grandparents and great grandparents, uh, immigrated to this country right after the Civil War from Northern Germany. Um, My family was known for and skilled at construction, and they specialized in building churches and cathedrals. So um, being raised, everything from being raised and baptized in the church that your grandparents and great-grandparents built is definitely very special. Uh, so I think that's always, you know, been a, a part of our life, you know, on a, on a daily basis and being integrated into faith. Yeah, it was true of me, uh, de facto, my Welsh grandparents. I didn't know my Welsh grandfather. I did briefly know my Welsh grandmother. They were both very devout. One was Church of, uh, Eng- Church of Wales, very Anglican. The other was Holiness Pentecostal. Mm-hmm. And my Welsh grandfather was a lay preacher over in our homeland of Wales. And so I always felt that uh, God was honoring them 
by raising me up in the faith and for ministry, uh, it's a pronounced sense of responsibility. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm being used of God, not simply to preach Christ, but to honor their devotion. So I, I understand grandparents mm -hmm. are very, very critical components to our lives, spiritually so. and otherwise. And sure. My grandmother's history, her faith history, my mother's mother, uh, was that she was um, orphaned as a child at age 11 in the Spanish flu pandemic in 1917. I actually forget what um, faith tradition my grandmother was raised in, but at age 11 um, in 1917, there was no Department of Human Services. There was no Child Protective Services. Um, I there Probably back in the day, there wasn't any orphanages. And based on the things that we've recently experienced with our own pandemic, maybe there was an orphanage. Maybe nothing was available to her because she was older and maybe they were they were full. Um, at that point, she was taken in by a neighborhood family that was Orthodox Jew. And so uh, my grandmother not being Jewish, she was able to work for them. And, you know, was she enabled them to keep holy their Sabbath. And what's always been very interesting with that, you know, with my grandmother, you know, having only a fifth grade education and being, you know, orphaned at age 11 and, you know, in the Spanish flu pandemic. And then, then her life catapulted to, you know, the Great Depression when you know, she met my grandfather and they were married in the mid 1920s. Um, you know, my grandmother knew how to make things from nothing. So, mm. you know, we were always, you know, I guess we've always had this security of, you know, we didn't have to have a lot of material goods to feel secure. We always had food. Nana was always there. You know, she imparted that to my mother and she imparted that to us. And I'm the oldest of six children. So there was always room for one more. And there was always dinner on the table. We were happier as well, weren't we? And we were happy. You see a whole generation. Yeah. I mean, you see a whole generation today. And I don't mean to mm -hmm. cast an uh, unduly a, a whole blanket upon them. But they have everything, and they're miserable. Well, well they have everything, or I'm going to pass this along. Um, we had our fights. We had our sibling fights. We had our rivalry. I think my parents allowed that to occur. I think one of the smartest decisions my father made when we were all kind of, kind of bottlenecked at teenagers, um, fighting for bathroom time and fighting for shower time and mm. telephone time because the telephone was attached to the wall. Um, I think the best decision he ever made was not to upgrade the size of the house, even though, you know, there were some justifiable reasons to do so. You know, we learned how to share. We learned how to fight. They, they, yeah. let, they let us fight. Yeah. They let us learn how to be uncomfortable. My mother was one of eight. My wife was one of seven. And yes, they had to learn how to make a go of it. Mm -hmm. And it was a very healthy thing. I think so. To be sure. So I think that's a, that's, that's a difference. Within a minute or so, and we'll we'll pursue mm -hmm. on the other end of the break. How did you find your way into medicine? Um, I think again, from a very young age, I've always wanted to be a doctor. Um, I really pushed myself through high school and college, uh, dedicated myself to the sciences, and did apply and was accepted into five medical schools. My avocation. Um, was that I'm also a horsewoman and had several horses. And so how do you pay for medical school and pay for your horses all at the same time? I guess you can take out a loan to pay for horses. I'm not so sure that would be <laughs> while you're going to medical school and add that into your expense expenses, list of expenses that you will be uh, financing. I'm not sure that was the smartest thing. Um, when I was at Chestnut Hill. You could have gone into... 
I'm sorry, I, a little quip. You could have gone into veterinary school and be a, a doctor to the horses, right? I could, but getting into veterinary school is harder than getting into medical school. Stop. So. That's that's what I hear. I do hear that. My my lovely uh, niece in Boston, my twin brother's girl, uh, she graduated from UMass Boston. She works for the Angel Memorial Hospital mm -hmm. in Boston, which is one of the preeminent veterinary uh, hospitals. And I know she longs to get into veterinary school. I think she's well qualified, but it is tough. tough. There's no question. But you know what else is tough? The time limits for oh, these yeah. conversations. Yeah. So we must take a break. Okay. Uh, yes, indeed. Brad Lacey and Christine Kindler, we will return with the great message in just a moment. Thank you. Brad Lacey and Christine Kindler returning for another round of the great message on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Christine Kindler is a PA. She was of marvelous uh, assistance to me in my recovery from quadruple bypass surgery. Christine, I, I, I became enamored of our conversations uh, in the office. I'm so happy we could continue apace via a broadcast, something perhaps a bit different for you, though I know you're a fan of Talk Radio 1210. I'd love for you to, to share more with us. You've shared of your background of faith, but share with us more now uh, with your, your medical uh, world. You were accepted into Chestnut Hill, and go from there, please. Well, I went to Chestnut Hill. Yeah, yes, yes. I good, good memory. I went to Chestnut Hill College for undergraduate, uh, completed that in three years, and then, like, we started to answer your question, um, got accepted to five medical schools, and I was kind of on the fence about, you know, the financial commitment, the time commitment. So at that point, I learned about the physician assistant profession through one of my father's colleagues, and I decided to pursue that. So fast forward, you know, pursued that was a two-year educational track compared to four-plus years of, of medical school. Um, got to do a lot of various things, which um, I dove into, and at in my PA program, I decided that I wanted to pursue a critical care type tract. So working in intensive care units, providing advanced life support type therapies and things. When I proposed that to my department director, uh, she kind of raised her eyebrow at me and just said, well, physician assistants, you know, give care in medically underserved areas and particularly in rural areas. And so I took that as a challenge. Um, and that was something that I had to find my own way and, and pursue, um, which I was able to do, um, attending the PA program at Hahnemann, uh, at that point, you know, it was a very large, uh, well-known institution in the greater Philadelphia area. So I worked my way, worked an algorithm through that to obtain the training that I wanted to do to, um, have the type of career that I wanted to have, um, which really kind of satisfied a lot of the desire to pursue an intense medical career. May I ask? And uh, you continue mm -hmm. your thought, please. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. And so, you know, I graduated in 1992 and, and uh, pursued my medical career from there. Well, number one, and I say this with respect and affection, uh, you don't look like you graduated from, from uh, medical school in 1992. <laughs> uh, you are blessed with the genes, and God bless you. But that being said, um, part of it, I think, too, along with your more youthful appearance, is that you have a, a freshness of disposition. You keep uh, a pace with all that's around you. That's of invaluable uh, assistance, not simply to your welfare, but to those of us who are patients. You see beyond yourself. 
That was evident to me from the moment I walked into the office. Let me ask you, if you're seeing beyond mm. yourself, you're going to be motivated by several factors. My working assumption is two are preeminent amongst them. Number one, you're clearly a, a lady of, of intellectual uh, uh, interest. You have intellectual uh, uh, interests. You have intellectual capacity, as the great Father Copleston put it. You, you have powers of intellection, not a phrase one hears often. But you also clearly take an interest in the lives uh, and welfare of your patients. I'm, I would love for you to address those two issues. Well, I think I was blessed with the gift of always wanting to read. So, And being in the medical profession uh, puts you into a position of being a lifelong learner. Um, being a horsewoman puts you into the position of being a lifelong learner. So both hands-on and and academic and book learning, and, uh, and that goes for both uh, both areas of my life. And I think my faith has always kept me with the perspective that um, everything is bigger than yourself, and there's there's a purpose and a plan, even if you don't, even if that hasn't been revealed to you. But yes. just that things are bigger than yourself. Uh, so, you know, we, you know, we, we deal with our mortality every day. And so I always kind of, I'm grateful that I have that insight to where this is going. And sometimes my patients are acutely aware of that. And sometimes they're not. <laughs> where did your, your interest in the welfare of other hum, human beings from where has that come? Is that the product of your faith, the product of examples of your parents from where does that come? I think, you know, faith and family. Um, I think, you know, both, like I said, my grandparents and, and my mother in our church, you know, we were always taught that, you know, we were to serve. Yes. So I think service has always been a focus in, in my faith journey. Uh, you know, coming from New England, uh, not everyone in New England is, is a committed Christian, probably far fewer today than an earlier era. But, you know, the, the old Republicans like the salt stalls and the lodges and the cabots, it was said of them that they were they were possessed of noblesse oblige, you know, a noble obligation mm -hmm. to serve the community. You clearly have that instilled within you. It's very evident to me you have a love for your patients. I'm curious, your patients come to you to, to, to get better and to receive guidance, but what do you receive from your patients? I, uh, it's evident to me a great deal. Um, well, similar to our relationship, I always find it fascinating learning about what other people do in their lives. When I used to work exclusively in intensive care units, a lot of times my patients did not um, speak, were unable to speak either because they were comatose or had a breathing tube in. And sadly, a lot of times the patients were not discharged from the intensive care unit uh, to home. We used to call it eternal discharge. And when I worked on the main line, um, one of the things that I used to do to get to know my patients was I used to look for their obituaries. Yeah. And, you know, so I always try to make sure I find out what makes my patients tick, um, particularly in situations when we are preparing them for large surgeries. Because um, I think, you know, the patient, I need to make sure that they understand that they're invested in, in what they're about to go through, you know, not knowing what the outcomes are, even though we can quote statistics. And yes. most of our statistics and things are positive, and I'm very blessed for that. So I think it's really important to get to know, get to know the people. Yeah, but statistics. What, what's the old quip? 
a, a million people die, it's a statistic. One person dies, sure. it's a tragedy. You know, you clearly mm-hmm. have have a, a, a grasp of that. You know, the last thing I wanted, Christine, was to undergo a second major cardiac surgery within mm-hmm. four years. That was a tough one. When it was first brought to my attention that that would be the case, I was stunned. When I left the hospital and my lovely friend picked me up, and I, I, she asked me what what happened. I had basically figured, you know, I'd get a clean report. Presumption on my part. Uh, I was stunned, and and uh, to have someone of your caliber, as well as the lovely surgeon, I realize I can't mention names, uh, but to to have individuals of your caliber, both in terms of your your technical capacity, but also your personal. Your your ability to connect personally. This is it's just of incomparable value. I'm a 62 year old man with cardiac experience. I think a man of some degree of maturity, of deep faith, and I was scared out of my mind. I needed what you had to offer. You delivered. I praise God for it. I'm sure that there are many other patients who have a similar story to tell, and are similarly grateful to you. Well, I want to emphasize when you. When you say the word you, um, I want to make sure that the studio audience and the, the radio audience hears that um, I'm hearing it as plural. Um, the word you is plural because we, we work as a team. Um, we don't work in a silo. And I think that's you know, really important to emphasize. Um, you, it is unusual for a person to, for the general population, to have a second cardiac surgery. Um, we thank you for entrusting our team with what you had to go through. Um, I, I lost my trend of thought, but basically I think, you know, all the things that you're saying is really heartwarming because things that go on contemporarily with the media and the way hospitals are portrayed in, in, in hot, uh, TV dramas, movie dramas, and, and some of the, you know, talk shows or advice columns, you know, you hear a lot of negative things about the medical community. Um, and I think it's really important to underscore that I, you know, most most clinicians, again, the statistic, you know, there's always one person who may be a little off in their judgment. We're human. Um, but I've had a good, good career for 32 years. And a lot of that was because I've been surrounded by, you know, good people who have led by example, who've led by dedication, uh, to the profession, to, you know, studying dedication to science and, and continuing to, you know, hone the art and science of medicine. So, um, you know, people talk about discrimination, uh, we work on a team in inner city, um, people of all walks of life. I've never seen any team member that I've been working with. So maybe, maybe I've been blessed that I've been kind of insulated. And so then I'm able to, um, share that, you know, positive experience with people who are struggling with, with, you know, you know, they come in with medical problems, but they bring in, you know, their backgrounds, you know, loss of have patients who lost, lose their job when they find out they need to have surgery or patients yes. who are battling addictions. And then, you know, they're realizing that they have to, you know, they're working on their addiction and maybe we're putting them on narcotics or they have to make major lifestyle changes, which are very difficult for them. Yeah. Um, well, well, I so can, I, I look at it that way. I can attest uh, without naming names or, or venues, uh, you and your colleagues, all of you, from the surgeon to your call, your PAs, uh, to the ladies in the office. It was nothing but a first-class experience for me. You were instruments of God in my care and nurture. 
I praise him and I thank you. Brad Lacey and Christine Kindler, we will return for one final round of the great message in just a moment. Brad Lacey, returning with the great message on Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, and returning in company with Christine Kindler, a marvelous physician's assistant. I think it's fair for me to call you my friend. We have had some engaging conversations in the office and now here across the airwaves. And Christine, I know it flies by, and I would already wish you to know I want to bring you back for further conversation. We do want to talk about uh, this wonderful work of people being brought to the United States uh, and, and being allowed to live in the homes of, of many of you within the profession as they undergo their care. But before I do, I have to ask you a question. It's meant rather cutely and affectionately, and, and that's, it's within that vein or spirit. You're a lover of horses. You're a lover of people. Who are easier to deal with, people or horses? <laughs> yeah, well, we'll, we'll, I'm jesting we'll, we'll, with we'll you. Table, <laughs> we'll table that one for the next time. <laughs> of course. I, I, I'm just being sweet with you. I suspect it's 50-50, depending, depending on, on the who. deck. Yeah. But that being said, there you go, the deck, exactly. That being said, uh, tell us about this wonderful, I'll call it a ministry. Tell us about this wonderful uh, medical ministry. You know, it's sort of formally informal. Um, I belong to a faith community in Chasson Hill, and one of uh, our local families lives in, in a home that they offer out to um, families who come to the area to get specialty care. We, um, she works at Will's Eye Hospital. So as you know, you know, people from around the world come there to have only what they have to offer. Um, a lot of children come to Shriners Hospital from around the world um, for specialty care that they can no longer or that they would not be able to receive otherwise, either due to lack of services or funds, um, as well as all the other university hospitals for special treatment. So sometimes people come and they stay for a few days to as much as, as several weeks to as much as I think the longest one was two and a half years. And as friends, you know, we come to their home, we help out with, with food, and you know, we just treat them like normal members of the family. Years ago, I think it was in 2011, 2012, they had a young man living with them uh, who came to Shriners for special medical care from Iraq. And he had a lot of things that were um, unique to his care. He came after um, his home was bombed. Uh, I think they had a car bombing or it was his home bombed and he lost his leg. So he came for special services, orthopedic services at Shriners. And we worked closely together um, to get him what he needed, helped his mom, um, worked on getting him asylum. At the time I was uh, dating a, a gentleman from Honduras and his children uh, moved here. And so it was a, a beautiful experience to raise his children uh, who needed to migrate here and work through the immigration system. It took several years. And so we raised Mohammed and um, my ex-boyfriend's son, Franklin, and they're fine young men uh, that we're proud of. Um, in parallel, there have been other families who come in into their community and home, and, and we assimilate them into the community. And, you know, I'm really grateful to be part of our church community at St. Paul's and Chestnut Hill and the Chestnut Hill community. All, just it's all different faiths working together to achieve one common goal. And um, 
you know, I'm always happy to share my faith and, and my talents and abilities with, with these families. My twin brother in Boston, he's an attorney. Uh, prior to his work as an attorney, when he was going through law school, uh, he, he worships at Park Street Church in downtown Boston. It's right at the base of Beacon Hill, very historic church, very historic area. And he was invested in a ministry with any number of the immigrants from all over the world. He was part mm -hmm. of a program. They helped instruct in the English language. And my brother mm -hmm. would be invited into their homes. I remember there was an Iraqi family that had him in for dinner. I mean, across the boards, Southeast Asia, everywhere, Africa. My brother to this day says that it was the most rewarding work of his life taking nothing away from his mm -hmm. service as an attorney, but that was the most rewarding work of his life. It's precious. Yeah, and it's interesting. And my experience um, took me to Guatemala. Our church sent us a group of us there to help with the companion diocese. And, um, you know, I'm going thinking I'm going to be there to help them. Maybe I'll work on my Spanish a little bit. And we're in the church and in the church school, and the kids are a varied age, and we're reading Bible stories. And then they wanted to play Como Se Dice, How Do You Say? And we're running around the classroom, <laughs> touching and pointing different things. And so I'm giving them the English words for the different objects. And then we looked at the map because then they wanted to know, you know, where did I live? And I pointed on the map where I lived. Then they're asking me in Spanish, you know, at this point, you know, I'm a young independent woman living in an apartment. Um, back to, I think, our original conversation. They're like, where do you live in my house? How many people live in your house? And I said to them, yo vivo solo. I live alone. Okay. They said, Probably they, inconceivable they, they, to them. They, they could not conceive that. When I explained to them that I lived alone, I had a job, I lived alone, I came home, parked my car, fed myself, they immediately got very upset. Some of them were crying. They grabbed my hand. Some of the older ones mm -hmm. put me, made, me, made me sit in a chair and they made me sit down. <laughs> <laughs> you poor like thing, was, right? They, they thought, and so here I am in, in Guatemala, thinking I'm going there to minister to them. Back to your to your point, giving giving them things that they don't have. When I realize they have everything. Yes, yes. You know, it's a differing uh, uh, context, but uh, you go looking to serve and you find yourself being served and being enlightened. It's, when mm -hmm. I, in my innumerable stays at the at hospital, to be unnamed, always consummate care, I would be a patient. The nurses would come in to minister to me. God bless them. They always did. But I found that I had a, a, a role in their lives. They were often ministering to patients who just couldn't do what I could do, but I would do it. I would take an interest in their lives. So what may, what brought mm -hmm. you to, into nursing? How are you today? I even found often, because I kept my room temperature low, so it would be chilly, the nurses would love to come in because they're running around hot <laughs> as heck. And I said, well, you can come in anytime you want and cool off, and they would. And we'd chat some more. You know, there's a mutuality at play. And that's what I loved about you and your mm -hmm. colleagues from the start. Uh, you, you clearly, you didn't simply, we didn't simply walk in for you to, to treat us medically. You treat us as people. There was a, there was a, a mutuality at play. I had the distinct sense that you enjoyed and profited from me as much as I did from you. That, that's a consummate pleasure, a consummate privilege, and you don't get it everywhere. 
Right. And last weekend I had the misfortune. I was covering another hospital shock trauma unit and the patient in the unit who was actually the healthiest in the unit and least likely to ended up basically having a cardiac arrest. We didn't see it coming. Um, as we're treating him and working on him, you know, so where's the wife, where's the family? Oh, she's on her way in coincidentally. And she just so happens to be a nurse in that institution. And that's just what you like to hear as a clinician, right? You know, this is going to be a tough conversation. So she was in the waiting room and, you know, approaching her and I'm explaining to her what's happening. And of course, you know, the nurse in her and the strong woman in her was stepping forward and asking technical questions. And then I could see the point in her where she's starting to migrate from being the nurse to being the wife because she realized she was saying technical things that then weren't making sense. And I think my years of experience and my wanting to connect with her, the first thing I said to her was, don't worry, he was not alone. And that was the thing that I said to him over and over, which I think is, you know, I don't want to do a mind read for her or, you know, but I think that was the most important thing to convey to her at that moment. You know, I could give her all the technical information. She would have totally understood what I was talking about. I wouldn't have had to talk. But the most important thing she needed to hear at that moment was her husband was not alone. Oh, your, your instincts were hit the nail on the head. God bless you for that. Christine, we do have to go. Will you come back? I will come back. I praise God to hear it. Brad Lacey and Christine Kindler. We bid you God's blessing today. Thank you for listening.